I just feel like that's a big part of what drives a photojournalist is this realization that it only happens once and it's only happening now. And if you don't make it, it will never be the same. What makes a great photo and how do you consistently deliver it and what can make it better? Your photographs are only as good as people allow you to see of their lives. Hello and welcome to the Photo Forward podcast, the weekly show where we explore the stories behind some of the greatest photographers and visual storytellers the world over. From their photographic origin stories to finding work-life balance as creative professionals, to how to actually make a living as a photographer, cinematographer, or multimedia creator, we uncover what makes them tick and their shutters click. I'm your host, Ben Brewer. But before we get into today's episode, I want to give a big thanks to everyone who's listening, subscribing, and dropping a rating or review on the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. It means so much to me to really start creating a community around the show. So if you want to hear more inspiring and creative shows like we've been producing, please head over to your podcast app of choice and give Photo Forward a review or a rating to help make this show reach an even larger audience around the world. All right, let's get into the show. Have you ever stepped back in your career, whether you're a visual creator or not, and thought, well, shit, is this it? Is this really as good as it gets? Is this what I want to be doing for the next X years of my life? Don't worry. That's a positive thing, despite however dark night of the soul it may feel in the moment. And you're definitely not the only one feeling that way. In the business and corporate world, yes, I know a lot of you will bristle at the very mention of that word, but hear me out. There's a really common expression or phrase that so encapsulates today's episode. When you get to the top of the ladder, you may find it is propped against the wrong wall. Today's episode is all about examining your ladder, and if things aren't feeling right, knowing how to jump to the right ladder to take you to the top. Paul Giraud is a portrait and wedding photographer and has been working professionally for over 35 years. Prior to creating a portrait and wedding business, he was a photojournalist for two major metropolitan newspapers, the Chicago Tribune and the Arizona Republic, and photographed thousands of assignments from pro sports, business portraits, documentary stories, to general assignment work. His images have been published in magazines around the world during his career. He has been a Sony artisan of imagery since 2014 and speaks often about Sony mirrorless cameras at professional gatherings. He and his wife, Nikki, run their business from their home base in Lake Mills, Wisconsin, his home state. After nearly 17 years in Southern California while raising their two children, Kate and Sparky, documenting their lives is his favorite and most personal photography project. In today's wide-ranging and beautifully encompassing episode, Paul and I explore his photographic career and transition from staff photojournalist to freelance business owner, how moving from California to Wisconsin taught him about the power of truly local visual storytelling, what mistakes younger photographers are constantly making, and how he created a beautifully simple execution of a personal project safely in the midst of a global pandemic. As always, show notes and links to other episodes of the Photo Forward podcast can be found online at photoforward.media forward slash podcast. So I'll get out of the way and let you all get to today's killer interview with photographer Paul Giraud. 
Paul Giroux. Welcome to the Photo Forward podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks. All right. Well, uh, first off, just to kind of date the podcast a little bit, we are in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. So just firstly, uh, are you guys staying safe? How's everything been uh, for you? Oh, thanks, Ben. We're doing well. And I have two kids that are 10 and 14, and they're doing online learning through our school here at Lake Mills. And we're very lucky. We're very blessed. We're in a really small town. There's very little problems with COVID-19 here. And the kids are able to go outside and we have a big yard and they have a trampoline to jump on. And then they can come inside and play Fortnite and get on their <laughs> iPads. And I mean, they're probably spending way too much time on screens, but it's okay because this is kind of an anomaly of a period in our life that hopefully we'll never have again. Yeah. So we're giving them a little bit of, you know, like a little bit of leeway on this, but no, we're doing well. Thanks. Yeah. Well, that's, that's understandable given all of this and that's good to hear that everybody's staying safe. Um, so first, yeah. So I guess the thing to on the heels of that, that I'd love to talk about is talking a bit about your porch portrait series that you've <laughs> been working on, uh, during this time. So we all kind of got the same news. Hey, stay at home orders. This is what needs to be done to, to make things, make things right. Uh, when did you think about, uh, doing a porch portrait series and, and, uh, how's that been going? I started it right away in mid March before mm-hmm. all the lockdowns happened, probably around, right around um, St. Patrick's Day, just after that. Mm-hmm. When the NBA canceled at, on March 11th, I figured, oh my gosh, this, that was pretty unprecedented. And I knew things were going to start to close down soon and just kind of like cascading. I went up to the state basketball tournament. Oh, I guess I think it was earlier than that, earlier than 11th up in Green Bay for the local girls. And it was crazy to try to get there because it was just as... COVID-19 was coming onto the scene and people were freaking out trying to figure out what to do. And so they only allowed a certain number of fans, their family members and fans, and then some media people. So I was able to go there and cover it. And, but she just knew that after that game, it was never going to be the same because they played that game on a Friday and by Saturday they shut down the whole tournament, the whole state tournament. Mm-hmm. And then just things started to kind of roll downhill from there. Probably midweek, Tuesday or Wednesday of that week, I went out to my niece's home. She and her husband and their two little girls live about three miles from us here in Lake Mills on the other side of the lake. And I went there to pick up a, an item from my nephew's in-law. And I saw my nieces in the window at their home. And mm-hmm. we weren't, they were beginning to a social distance, even from family. And it was very, very confronting to us because we see them three or four times a week. And that was one reason why we moved to Lake Mills because my sister lives here and her husband, my niece and her husband and the girl and the two little girls and my kids are young. So we wanted to be really close to family so that we could all see each other and not just once a month. And so that was the first kind of like in our face sense that this was going to be very, very different. But I remember seeing the girls at the window and they're three and five and they're just as cute as can be. (laughs) And also I felt like here are these little beautiful girls that I can't go over and hug and say hello to and high five. And I just kind of felt really separated and sad because of this. But I also thought it was kind of hauntingly beautiful too. And I didn't have a camera with me, but I went home and I told my wife about it. And I said, I've 
got to make that photo. And she said, well, just call Stefan, Jaron. <laughs> I'm sure they'll let you come by again. And I did and went back about an hour or so later and photographed them. And that was the beginning of the project. And I made a photo of them that I just absolutely love and still love to this day of them in the front door with the girls in the bottom of the door and the, the kind of the lamp light on is that it was getting dark. Mm -hmm. And I shot, I showed that to some friends, some photography buddy of mine's and they were like buddies of mine. And they said, yeah, that really looks good. Um, and then I did one more friend of ours on their front porch the next day, just to have something different than my family to show. And then I launched it that afternoon on Facebook. I went back and ripped up my website and created a landing page and <laughs> changed all the slideshows to do this portraits in the time of Corona. Temporarily unhooked my weddings and my portraits from my site, the commercial aspects of it, and figured that this was where I was going to kind of just jump in head first and go. And that's what I did. And I put it on Facebook at 6.15 and boom, you know, the <laughs> It was off to the races, and I was booking sessions like crazy. I've never booked anything quite like this. Now, these are pro bono sessions, so there's no money exchanged. And these are my way of showing this really historic point in time for my community. But they're also helping me by signing a model release so I can create a book out of it and mm. hopefully a gallery and things like that and display these images. But I just thought that... This is something that hopefully will only happen once in our life. And I want people to remember it. I want to remember it and I want to share it. And I think there's something really profoundly beautiful in it, also pro profoundly sad, but also really historic. And I really thought that it had to be done and had to be done now. That's fantastic. And and they are, they are just, they're simple. They're moving. It's it tells the same story and the same emotion that we're all feeling or, or how everyone feels it a little bit differently. So I think that's, I think that's really, really noble that you're doing that and, and have been able to, to pivot, pivot your traditional work uh, during this crazy time into that. So I, I commend you for that. Thanks. And we'll show, and we'll show links to where people can check this out online in the show notes as well. So going from your current photography work in, in the age of Corona, I want to go back to the beginning. So what was your first job uh, as a photographer? Well, my first job is in photojournalism. I graduated from Marquette in 1983. And two days after I graduated, I started as an intern at the Chicago Tribune. And it was a dream job for me. And, you know, a lot of times people don't realize that in the 80s, the early 80s, late 70s, we were dealing with a really, really tough economic situation. Jobs were pretty scarce. Interest rates were incredibly high. And I was supposed to graduate in 82, but I transferred. And so it gave me an extra year to kind of let the economy rebound. And luckily, the Tribune hi hired me as an intern. And it gave me an opportunity to do things for a major metro newspaper. Now, the summer before in 82, I had worked as an intern in Milwaukee at the Journal and Sentinel, and I was having the time of my life. <laughs> but I always wanted to be in Chicago. That was a city that I dreamed of being in. Very different. If you've been to both, you know how different they are. Oh, yeah. Although they've changed a lot in the time since I left. And Milwaukee is a much, much more sophisticated and amazing city. It always was, but it's particularly good now. And Chicago, I still feel is like the best city in America, <laughs> without a doubt. It's just got the most 
I don't know. It's just got the most heart and soul of any city I can find. New York is great in its own way, but it's not Chicago and vice versa. <laughs> but I love Chicago, but I always knew that I wanted to do something beyond Chicago. And that was my dream was to follow it and do more international and national traveling. My my hero at that time was David Burnett, and he still mm-hmm. is my hero, and he's a friend, which is really great. And Dave was in Washington at the time, and Dave was pretty much living out of a suitcase and a donkey bag, traveling the world, photographing. You know, he, he there, there was an, an old American photo magazine article that said he's been everywhere in the world, but for, for 15 minutes. And I just <laughs> thought it was so, so true about Dave. And I mean, he is just, I, I just think he's one of the most wonderful people you'd ever meet. He's got great stories. He has a great ear for imitation. And I love hanging out with him. And I got to admit, though, when I first met Dave, I was like, in total awe of him, much like a young basketball player would be if they were to meet Michael Jordan for the first time. And I was like, I, 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 Mr. Bur- Mr. Burnett. And, and, but yet he was so nice about it. And then finally we, we would always get along and he was very nice to me. And where we really, really hit it off was in 1988. We were flying somewhere over Kansas with Mike Dukakis in the presidential election. We were on the press charter and so somewhere at about 35,000 feet in the afternoon, we had a beer, which is probably not the best thing to do when you're traveling and working for 20 hours. But we just had one anyway, and we just started doing imitations to each other, you know, back and forth, back and forth. And after that, we've just been fast friends. And ever since, we still get along wonderfully. And I love the fact that Dave's a Sony artisan because it's just like I wanted to shoot Canon when Dave was shooting Canon back in the 80s. And so that's one of the main reasons why I switched to Canon in 1986 was because Burnett did. And it's like, I wanted to be like Burnett. (laughs) And so now I shoot Sony and like Dave's shooting Sony too. And it just, it just feels like the circle's complete. So did you always want to be a photographer? Did you kind of know that growing up? Ever since I was 12. I mean, I was, Mm -hmm. I mean, for the most part, I started doing a Boy Scout merit badge and I fell in love with it instantly. I can still remember like most young photographers can that first time that they ever saw a print come to life in the tray and just thinking, Oh my gosh, this is amazing because I'd always loved art. I'd always loved drawing, but I never was really good, good enough, I think at it. But photography was this way to combine like art and my interest in sociology and history and, and news and, you know, current events, but also sports and things like that. So it was able, it was the first thing that I was able to find that just really fit to be able to combine all these interests and give me a reason to be somewhere. And that's what I wanted to do is I wanted to see this stuff. It's kind of like with this COVID-19 stuff, it's like, I want to feel and see what it's like for these people who are being affected by this. And some of them are working, some of them are not. And I just, I just feel like that's a big part of what drives a photojournalist is this realization that it only happens once and it's only happening now. And if you don't make it, it will never be the same. And that's what continues to drive me as a photographer. Now, I, and do weddings and I do portraits and things like that. But I have always at the core felt that I'm a photojournalist and a storyteller above anything else. Mm-hmm. What did you think you learned the most, uh, in your time in that, in that first job at the Tribune? Ah, uh, the first, the, one of the first things that I did is learned coming away from those newspaper jobs is you always had to deliver the goods. You always had to make something that you knew could make it in the paper. 
And so you would work to the point where you knew that you had something. And this was in the film days, so you didn't quite see it like you do with a digital camera. Mm -hmm. So you had to kind of like learn after experience that, yeah, I think I've got that. So now I can be free to kind of explore and try different things. But you always came back with something that you knew could work in the paper. And sometimes that meant like a flash on camera photo just to cover your butt. But you always began to learn what it took to deliver like the minimum viable product for a newspaper. And then it was always to go beyond that as well. So that's, that's the kind of thing. But the other thing you learned is you learned to do three or four or five assignments a day for five days a week. And you got really good at making connections with people in a really meaningful way to get them to give you access to their lives, to make the photos that you would put in the paper. It was, and it was the real beginning to the realization that this was truly something that people would give you, not that you took. They would allow you into their lives to make photographs that would then be shared in newspapers, pre-online stuff. And it was probably the best training you could get on both the technical side, but also on the interpersonal side, because you realize that your photographs are only as good as people allow you to see of their lives. Mm -hmm. And you really have to, you have to give yourself into it. I mean, you have to really commit to be fully, fully present with, with people in that moment. Right. It also was just such, especially the journal year was just so good for really refining technique and learning what worked, what did, what didn't work. And, you know, as photojournalists, when you do so much, you begin to know what techniques will always deliver the goods, whether it's a backlit 880 millimeter shot at sunset, 1/250th at f2.8, 400 ISO. <laughs> you just do it like the back of your hand. And that was one of the things that I learned in, in all this daily practice. So who were, who were some of your, your mentors during that time? And, and what do you think you learned from them? Well, I learned from Mark Ertz, Hertzberg and Mark was at the Racine paper and he's subsequently retired, but we're still friends and we get together once a month with a group of photographers who do kind of a lunch and we would go to Waukesha or I'm sorry, we'd go to um, Delafield and we'd go to this uh, Paul Revere's Inn and just get together. We haven't done that because of the COVID stuff. <laughs> but uh, Mark, when I was a student at Ripon before I, Ripon College was a small school in the center part of the state that I went to before I transferred to Marquette and got a journalism degree. But I wrote to Mark because he had gone to Beloit College and, or no, he had gone to Lake Forest. I'm sorry, he'd gone to Lake Forest. And so both of these tiny little Midwestern schools and we wrote, he wrote to me and was very, very helpful. And I'll never forget that. And then I spent a semester in 1980 in Chicago and John White at the Chicago Sun-Times, uh, before he won his Pulitzer, was teaching at Columbia College. And when I got there, I said, I'm going to meet John. I don't know how, but I'm going to meet him. So I called up the newspaper and finally got through to him. And we, and if, then we eventually met for lunch. And it was at, ironically the same night that his class was going to start at Columbia. He taught a class one night a week hmm. from seven to 10. And it was made up of students who are trying to be photojournalists or just to take it as a part of their photo curriculum. 
But then what happened after 10 o'clock is they had to kick John out of the school because he would stay so late. And then he would go to the Billy Goat Tavern down Mm -hmm. in Lower Wacker in Lower Michigan, and and we would close the Billy Goat sometimes. But all of his older students would come in from his previous classes. So I got to become friends with them. And I mean, I just was having the time of my life. And John was such a, a huge, huge influence on me. But then other photographers that I worked with, like Ovi Carter, Phil Greer, Chuck Cherney, Eddie Wagner, Bob Langer at the Tribune, Jerry Tomaselli. I mean, there were so many great guys that they gave me so much knowledge and they didn't even know that they were giving it to me because it was like the old school Chicago guys. It was like it was like it was like you're hanging out in a mobster movie sometimes because these guys were such characters and such Chicagoans. And I was the kid who just fell off the the turnip truck from Wisconsin. (laughs) But I was as far away from Chicago as you could get. But yet it also was kind of something that made it a little bit easier for me to kind of be accepted because I wasn't perceived as this, this, this uh, threat to them. I was like the kid that they, you know, they were, I was about the age of their kids, most of them. Mm -hmm. And I was really baby faced and I looked like I was 15 and you know, they were all very nice to me. In fact, one time a year after Harold Washington had been mayor, he was the first African-American mayor in Chicago. And a reporter and I went to meet him and George introduced me to the mayor. And he said, uh, Mayor, this is Paul Giroux. He's with the Tribune. And Mayor Washington looked me up and looked me down. And he goes, you must be the youngest photographer in captivity. <laughs> it, was just, it was just this great little thing because, I mean, I looked like a dope, a dorky kid, you know, and uh, it was it was such a great time. I mean, I love my time in Chicago from 83 to 85 and learned so much from people there. And I'll always be grateful to Tony Berardi who hired me and gave me a chance. But one of the things that I did, which was different, is that it didn't happen right away. I started going in to see him in 1980. Hmm. And I ended up getting an internship in 1983. And I would go in probably every three to six months and just continue to work and show the things that I was doing and create a relationship. And what happened is at the Milwaukee internship, I had seen him before. It started and I'd shown my work and then I showed him almost an entirely new portfolio in three months time, including coming in with a stack of newspaper clips, (laughs) which was common when you were back in the day. And he said something to me. He said, are you the only one working there? Which obviously wasn't the case, but I was really prolific that year. And I had set a goal to change my portfolio from that summer and pretty much did that entirely. But that was when I knew that he had seen something different. And it was, it was when I began to see that he was seeing this real progression very quickly. And then, then the next year, a year later, I was offered an internship there and the rest is, as they say, history. <laughs> yeah. I think that that definitely speaks to the power of of practice. I think that that regular repetition, just like you said, shooting five days a week, I mean, that that make that has to make you a better photographer oh. by definition. And it's a shame, I think, too, Ben, that there's just so many photographers that don't have the benefit of that anymore because newspapers aren't what they were and the staffs aren't big. And I mean, the other thing is, is a lot of the older staffers in newspapers now are, are gone. They've been pushed away or bought out. And I'm I learned more from the older photographers than I learned from the people who are closer to age 
to me. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why, maybe I was a competitor to them or they thought of me as a competitor, but the older guys, you know, the guys who were 20 and 30 years older than me, maybe saw me as like their nephew or as their kid. And they just wanted me to do it right. And they would just like beat it into my brain about how to do things. And a lot of it was just learning to to deal with that kind of generational difference. But I learned more from them than I could even imagine I would have. And it was a big part of the, fount, you know, the building blocks of a career in f- photojournalism. I'd love to get into the transition uh, between the between the Trib and Arizona. Oh, yeah. Well, I was in D.C. in 80, 85. And then after Bush 41 got elected, the Tribune wanted me to come back to Chicago. And I didn't really want to come back. It wasn't that I loved D.C. because I really did not love it, but I just didn't want somebody telling me to come back to some place that I didn't necessarily want to go back to. And so I decided to leave. I was 29. I was a kid and I didn't have any wife, kid, house or anything like that. So I just said, well, I'm going to try to freelance here. And so for 18 months, I had a contract with Sigma, which was a French agency at the time doing Washington work. And I got to the point where it's like I knew I didn't want to make photos of people at microphones in Washington for the next 30 years. And I just (laughs) had to get out of there as good as it was from a career standpoint. And I still have a lot of great friends from my time in D.C., but I just knew that I couldn't live there. I couldn't keep doing that work forever. And I just needed to move. And Chicago wasn't an option. And I, even if it was, I don't think I would have gone back just because I wanted to go someplace that was really different. And I had heard through the grapevine that Arizona was looking for a photographer. And I had worked with Howard Finberg at the Chicago Tribune, and he was now a, a managing editor out in Phoenix. And we connected at a conference in DC earlier in the year and we just talked and I, I called him up and I said, you know, I was, I saw you look very happy and you looked really engaged and excited about what you were doing out there. And I thought maybe there was a place for me out there. And it began a process of about four months of talking to them, going out there to interview and subsequently getting offered a job and then going out there. What do you think drives that, uh, that wanting to, to go to somewhere new? you know, moving all over the place to Chicago, to what, D.C., Arizona, what what kind of drives that? Part of it is it's kind of like George Bailey and It's a Wonderful Life. You know, he just wanted to see the world. He didn't want to be stuck in a small town. And I kind of felt that way. It's like I just read about these places and I just wanted to see them. And I wanted to experience life for myself, not through somebody else's view, but mine. And, you know, the ironic thing, too, is um, that just before I left from D.C. for Arizona. I had photographed the head of the, um, he was the, the Italian newspaper. I can't remember the name of the paper. And he was doing a story, a book on America. And he was actually from Genoa where Columbus was from. And he goes, you know, Americans are so interesting. I told him I was moving to Arizona and he goes, do you have any family there? And I go, well, I have a first cousin out there. And he goes, so you're basically moving almost all the way across the country for an opportunity. And he kind of shook his head and he goes, Americans are just so different than most Italians because that's such an American thing to do is to pick up and just go for a sense, a chance that there's an opportunity. And I didn't know how it was going to turn out. And I figured, "Eh, you know, if it's, if it doesn't work, I'll come back or go somewhere else, you know? And I, I went out there and 
it was actually probably one of the best things I could have done for my career because even though it was a smaller paper than the Tribune and not nearly as prestigious, I did far more work in Arizona that was much more varied than I would have had I stayed in Chicago because in Chicago at the Tribune, you pretty much got stuck in doing a lot of things. Like if you were a night guy, you were doing a lot of society jobs, occasionally some sports, picking up film from the sports photographers because they had three sports photographers who did nothing but sports. Mm -hmm. And they had a studio that had maybe two or three photographers who did all that kind of lighting stuff. And I love to do things like that too, because I was just trying to do a lot of different things. And so it was much more varied in Phoenix and it was a big paper. It was the paper of record, but it wasn't as big and as cumbersome and bureaucratic as the Tribune was. And so it was really probably one of the best things that I could have done for my life and my career. And subsequently, you know, I met people through that because I moved that eventually led to me meeting my wife and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Those, those little decisions you make that eventually change the course of your life in a big way. It starts at those little micro decisions. So that's interesting because I think part of this podcast is focused around for younger photographers getting started. And there's a lot of kind of competing ideas. It's like, is it better to be a generalist photographer that's good in a lot of different areas? Or is it better to really niche down into one and be truly excellent at that. And it kind of seems like from what you're describing for you, it was getting to be a better well-rounded photographer in your time at Phoenix. That's for me, that's what I believe, but you know, it's just one person's opinion. It could be <laughs> wrong. And for other people, it could be that they just want to shoot sports. But I know, cause I did a lot of times where like I did about a six week period in Chicago one winter from like February one of the photographers had been out for a while doing some, he had some health issues. And so I was substituting for him. And for six weeks I did sports. And I'll tell you, I got to the point where I was just like seeing basketballs in my dream. And even though I loved shooting sports and I kind of had this dream at one time and when I was in college to work for SI, I just realized that, oh my gosh, this could be like really you're not dealing with people. You're just standing back. It's a technical exercise. You're making great photos. It's a very hand-eye coordination kind of thing. And I love it from the challenge. But if I did it all the time, I'd go crazy. Much like if I did studio work all the time or location lighting stuff all the time, I would go crazy. If I did uh, documentary projects where I didn't have an opportunity to do some things that were sports, then I might you know, go crazy. So I stayed in newspapers for 19 years because I loved the ability to do things and you know, uh, have a variety of things to do. And that was one of the nice things about the Republic is that they, if I had this kind of like itch that I wanted to scratch, whether it was shooting medium for format portraits or doing a lot of sporting events, covering like the Arizona Cardinals as like a beat photographer, they pretty much let me do it, which was really, really cool. So I don't know if I have any answer for these kids who are coming up because frankly, I just always felt like if I was doing a sports event, I wanted to shoot it like sports illustrated. If I was doing a business portrait, I wanted it to be as good as fortune magazine. If I was doing a documentary project, I wanted it to be in life magazine or national geographic. So I always looked beyond where I was to set the standard and set the bar. And I always felt like if you could create that kind of work, you could get to that level. And 
I just felt like I always had to be looking beyond where I was at to get better at where I was at because everybody can improve and nobody comes out of the womb as a great photographer. They <laughs> all have to kind of refine their skill sets and get better and better and better. And now one of the things I'm trying to do is more video. So I'm hmm. trying to learn audio and learn, learn lighting and, uh, you know, video lighting and work on working the camera because it's a totally different ballgame than working with stills. And so it's, again, that constant process of always trying to improve and get better because I always felt like if you can bring your skills set up, you can do pretty much anything you want or need to do. Yeah. And there's something to be said for for bringing in some of the, the aspects or mindsets or or skills from one one realm of photography or video into another. I agree. And I actually think that photojournalists are the most complete photographers on the planet. And I'm totally biased, of course, but I, I feel like these are photographers who can go in, into any situation, whether they're photographing a CEO, the president, or if they're photographing some person who happens to be down on his luck on the street. And they're going to be able to make empathetic conversation and be able to engage them as people. And then they're going to be able to make these photographs, whether it's a sporting event, whether it's a lit portrait, whether it's a video project or whether it's a documentary project. I think that having those skills can only help you and it just makes you a much more rounded photographer. But I think it also makes you a very well-rounded person, too. Hmm. How do you uh, I was going to go on, but I kind of want to touch on that a little bit more. How do you think being a photographer has has changed you as a person? Well, I I have seen the world in a way and almost every state in the union because of the camera. It has changed my life in a very deep and profound way. It's allowed me to, to meet, you know, achieve my dreams. It's allowed me to live where I want. It's allowed me to do pretty much what I want to do for a living. And yes, it has responsibilities, but I want that to be kind of a marker for my kids so that they see that, you know, it's possible that you don't necessarily have to do a Monday through Friday, nine to five. Not that that's bad, but that's just not what I wanted to do. I worked one summer between my senior year in high school and freshman year in college. And it was in the local fact, one of the factories in my hometown. And it was a great job. It paid more than anything I'd ever done in my, my life. Up until that point, it was much higher paying than fast food working at the Pizza Hut or the A&W root beer stand, which I had done. But when I did that job, even though it paid me more, I realized how incredibly mind-numbing it was for me. And it was physical, and you'd, it was assembling hydraulic jacks. And you'd put your hands in these chemicals, and you probably should have worn gloves, but I was too <laughs> damn impatient. And you'd reach in, and you'd pull these metal pieces out, and then you would just assemble these parts. And it wasn't that I couldn't do it, but I just couldn't imagine doing it for 20 years. And some people do it, and they've that's what they want in their life. And I'm not judging that because that's a very important thing for people to know who they are and what they want to do. But I knew that I had to go to school and I had to get a degree because I did not want to be dependent on that for my livelihood. I wanted to see the world and I wanted to, to see it through, uh, through the eyes of a journalist. I love it. I, I could not, could not agree with that sentiment more. So on the subject of knowing yourself, tell me a little bit about when you made the decision or your process for leaving the paper and, and transitioning to freelance and, and starting your own business? I had always been freelancing. I'd always had side jobs ever since I was in, an intern. 
And I always thought that was really important. I wanted to have my own gear as much as of it as I could. And I also wanted to never be totally beholden on one paycheck. I always felt like that was not a, that was kind of a, a deal that I didn't want to make. And I, I, I always felt like I had to have other irons in the fire because one, I had those dreams to go beyond the newspaper, but I'll tell you, it was hard to leave because it was very easy to get locked into the, what we used to call the golden handcuffs of working for a newspaper <laughs> and you'd get the pension, you'd get the cameras, you get the car allowance and all that kind of stuff and a fairly decent salary, not bad, uh, but not, not great. You know, it was a good salary, but it wasn't a great salary. And I just got tired of having somebody decide for me if I was worth a 1% raise a year or three and a half percent raise. I just got tired of that because I felt like there was a lot of politics that got involved with it. But what happened was, is I met my wife at a wedding in 2000 and I'd photographed weddings for two other friends before that wedding. And I realized that doing wedding photography, I was doing everything that I always loved about photo, photojournalism storytelling. It was a beautiful event. You had time to be there. They wanted you to be there. And there was, it was, there was a payoff in good pictures. It was just a really important event spiritually as well as in the, in the history of that family. So I thought, this is everything we always wanted to do as photojournalists, but yet we looked down our nose at it because it's wedding photography. And I began to lose that kind of snobbery of over wedding photography, which I had harbored for a long time because when I was a kid, and I was 15 or so. I was working for my local hometown portrait studio. And um, things were different in the 70s. Film was what people shot on back then for studios. And they had to kind of create a product that was predictable and deliverable to every client. And that just, I couldn't understand it. You know, I was a, a dumb kid. And I thought these photos, and they would literally have a list of the photos that they would make so that they could deliver a very re repeatable album for clients from one to the next while maintaining their profit margins. <laughs> and I get that now, but at the time I thought, gosh, if this is what wedding photography is. Oh my gosh, I'd rather drive spikes through my eyes. It's horrible. <laughs> but then I saw Dennis Reggie and actually even long before I met Dennis, I photographed my sister's wedding and I said, look, I'll photograph your wedding, but I'm just going to shoot black and white and tri-X and I'm just going to shoot what I see. And I'm not going to set up any of the group photos. And she had hired a, uh, professional local photographer who did all that stuff on a 645 camera, medium format camera. And I was just free to roam. And I was like, I was having a great time. <laughs> but then, you know, like when you're in newspapers, people would always ask you, would you mind doing uh, photographing a wedding for me? And we'd kind of roll our eyes and think, oh gosh, okay, but I won't do it like a wedding photographer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why we want you. So as long as they could agree to those terms, then it was fine. But I still had this kind of like snobbish contempt of wedding photography. I thought, oh God, I'm a photojournalist. I don't do that stuff. And boy, it's so funny when you're young and you, you have those kind of ideas. And then as I got closer to 40, I started to realize, you know, newspapers are great, but you know, I got tired of showing up for people on their worst days and I wanted to be where somebody was having their best day. And that's what I found at a wedding. So what went into that decision to finally one day transition and say, I'm no longer a newspaper photographer. Now I'm going off on my own. It had, it had been building over time. In 97, I had kind of this epiphany as I was getting closer to 40. And I was thinking, you know, when I was a kid, all I wanted to do was work for SI, Sports Illustrated. And so in January of that year, I set a goal 
by the end of the year, I wanted to begin to do some freelance work for him because I figured that that would be my path out of newspapers is to do work for the magazines based in Phoenix traveling and things like that. And so I did a lot of that freelance work and eventually did a store, uh, uh, an assignment for sports illustrated. Hmm. And as I did that work, I really enjoyed it, but I also, I didn't enjoy that, the, the, the editorial type of existence, which was doing an assignment, waiting for the phone to ring, and then sometimes waiting 60 to 90 days to be paid. I just thought that was bullshit. I'm sorry. But if we delivered our photos with the same alacrity that they would often pay us in editorial rates, they would never have a publication. So I just thought that they weren't taking people, taking care of the people who were basically taking care of them because a lot of times the editors were staff and they just, they didn't, they didn't realize they were getting paid every week or every two weeks and they got their benefits, but freelancers weren't. And I thought, I kind of gave up on that dream of doing editorial freelancing because I realized I was so such an island out in Phoenix. I didn't have any real point of contact with people other than over the phone. Whereas when I was a news photographer, I could go into an office. I can have eye-to-eye conversations with people. I could build my alliances. I would get paid. Granted, it wasn't unlimited, but at least it was a really steady job. And I realized that I had to do something else because the, the idea of leaving newspapers for magazines, eventually I realized wasn't going to work for me. And then I had to kind of like swallow my pride at the time and think, well, maybe it's weddings. And when I met my wife at a wedding and we, we were engaged after 10 days and married, married a year later. And then when she, we got, after we got married, I said to her, what would you think of us moving, selling our house and moving because she is from South Africa and gave up a job in advertising in Cape Town to move to Arizona to be with me. And then she, she was now able to work. She had her green card and her social security card so she could actually get a job legally. And it was right after 9-11. So it was like not a great time to be quitting a perfectly good job. But in, st- in spite of that, we did. We sold our house and six weeks later, I gave my notice and left. And we, I always wanted to live in California. I wanted to try it. I never wanted to be afraid of a city. And L.A. scared the hell out of me because it was so big and so massive. And I just didn't want to live my life like that, having that big block of fear. But I also felt like it would be a very good place to go to set up shop as a wedding photographer because you could theoretically do it for 10 to 11 months out of the year. Mm-hmm. And I just also got to the point where as I didn't want to look back at when I was 70 and say, oh, it would have been so nice to try that and, and do it. So I, she was game. I mean, of course, she's pretty, says a lot about her. She moved from South Africa to, to be with me and then she moved again. So we, we just left and went to Manhattan Beach and we had a blast and started to build a business and you know, for the next 17 years, we lived in California. That's fantastic. And, and as you're building that business, um, when did, when during that process, did you start doing more, um, kind of teaching and seminars and presentations and, and trying to, trying to share what you've learned along the way? It's funny because right around 2003, I'd done an article for some online site about 
digital versus film. It was during that early period of early digital and it was pretty God awful <laughs> compared to film. And there was this still like the, there was the early digital adopters. And then there was the kind of like the holdovers like me who were dragging and screaming to, to shoot digital when we'd rather shoot film. But I wrote, I thought a pretty balanced article about it. And some British publisher reached out to me after seeing it. it was on the, actually on the WPJA site, the Wedding Photojournalist Association site. And he said, would you be interested in writing a couple chapters for a book on digital wedding photography? And I said, yeah, sure. Well, I wrote the book and got published. And then I sent it to a friend of mine, Dave Metz from Canon. And I had known Dave since the Chicago days in the early 80s. And then he was running their Canon Explorers program. And I'd known a lot of the Canon reps at that time because they were friends as much as they were professional relationships like Mike Shearis and Amy Quadler and Michael, um, oh, like Bobby Mollish and, and folks like that. And um, I sent him a book, the book and I said, hey, Dave, I just wanted to send you a copy of the book. I I. I wanted to thank you for all the help you've given me over my career. And I thought you might like it. And about six months later, I got a call from him asking me to be a, an explorer of light, which was pretty cool. And that kind of started teaching because I was doing things for Will Crockett's school at the time, Shoot Smarter University, writing articles. Because I've always, I've always liked to share what I've learned about lighting hacks or, you know, tips or things. Or because I, I, one of the things that I think, that I do pretty well is I think I figure things out in a very uh, kind of a simple way that's easily taught to people mm -hmm. so that, you know, because part of it is, is you have to teach it to yourself when you're doing things and you're, you're constantly standing like you're almost like above your yourself looking at how you're doing things and thinking, Hmm, what could I do that's better? And part of it is that process of questioning what makes a great photo and how do you consistently deliver it and what, can make it better. And, uh, that's, that's really kind of the foundation of what I do educationally. And now I do it with the Sony system and I really love it because to me, Sony is, it's the camera that I wanted that I didn't even know I wanted. And that's what makes it so profoundly different for me than anything that I've shot before. And I mean, I, there was a time when I just felt like I would never want to not shoot film. And now I can't even think about wanting to shoot it because I just feel like I, I can't even compete with the, the quality of the stuff that's coming out of these Sony's now. But that was the beginning of it. And it just continues to this day. And it's one of those things that I really love to do. I like to give talks on it. And I've done some teaching for Best Buy through Blue Pixel. And I'll tell you, those are the kind of things that have gotten me in front of people to get me very comfortable in front of people and then watching to see what people get and how it translates for them and how they kind of can take that information and then utilize it. And then you get the feedback of it. And that's another thing that's really, I think so important in photography is critique, very valuable critique. And I think it's one of the things that's really lacking in photography this at this time, you know, when people go through Facebook and give it a thumbs up or double tap it for hearts on Instagram, that's great. But often you don't really learn what's missing and what can make it better. And that's where I think really constructive, valuable, uplifting critique can help people learn to be better and learn at, to ask questions so that they can begin to kind of like basically apply that training to themselves, if, if you will, so that they can almost help themselves get better so that they can step outside of themselves and not be in love with a photo and just look at it and say, that works. 
but what could make it better? And, and maybe this is just a, a, a pure conjecture, but but what do you think is the right way to do that? Because I, I, I totally, I could not agree more with that. And I, I feel like in every format that I've seen, besides really purposeful, in-person, meaningful critique, it just, it either, it falls apart because people stop showing up uh, to sort of group things online or... Uh, God, don't get me started on all of the, the Facebook photography groups that just spiral out of control. I mean, it, it seems like there's short of in person, it, there's hard to find that. True. I think it is. But it's really incumbent on the person, the photographer, to seek it out. They have to just push forward for it and they have to develop a certain amount of a thin skin. And maybe it's part of growing up in the 80s and the 70s where people were not often politically correct when they gave you critiques. And sometimes that was harsh. Like I remember being in the Missouri workshop in 1984. And one of my, one of the instructors, there was a, a man named Ken Paik, who is North Korean by birth and uh, went to the Korean equivalent of West Point, And he had no patience for anything, <laughs> you know, that wasn't to a certain level. And there was a young photographer there. He was a freshman at Northern Illinois and he had been invited by Cliff Edom to come there. Cliff was the guy who started the Missouri photojournalism workshop. Mm -hmm. And this photographer was very, very raw, 18 years old, just had worked in a steel mill in Chicago Heights where he grew up. He um, came from a very humble background. He did not have a lot of money and he had a lot of drive. But he was very, very raw, and it showed in his work. And you have about 80 photographers there. Most of them are working five to ten years in the profession. We had one of the best classes of photojournalists that I can remember coming out of a Missouri workshop. I mean, people that became pretty well known in the industry. And this photographer would get his work reviewed by Ken Paik every night, and he would sit on a table in the back of the room and after day three, everybody knew who shot what. And you could almost hear like the, the entire room let out a collective sigh and a groan because it's like, oh, shit, it's going to be his critique coming up. And they just knew he was going to get hammered. And Paik would get up there and he would speak to him and he would go, what is this shit? <laughs> I mean, and the whole room would just kind of like cower. Mm-hmm. And I would just kind of like feel so bad for that guy. And I thought, oh, man, there's a guy who's going to get out of photography. But he didn't. Hmm. He didn't. In fact, by the time he was a senior, so three years later, he was a finalist for the Hearst competition. And he ended up getting hired at the Chicago Tribune right out of college, just like me. Hmm. And he's, he's one of my dearest friends now. His name's John Kringus. And I'm his son's godfather. And I thought for sure he was going to leave photography, but he said, no, he was right. And I needed to learn it, but he had the right attitude for learning and he took it as coaching. He didn't take it as critiques and see, that's, what's really different from that generation versus what might be appropriate in this generation mm -hmm. because it's a different time. So I think it's really incumbent upon the teacher to really understand who the audience is. Who is that person who's getting the critique do you know them well enough to say certain things? Because if you say something in writing, you don't get tone and inflection. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've done in terms of teaching was to teach for five years for betterphoto.com, which was an online class. I had to write critiques every week. And 
I had to write them in a way that would build people up and not tear people down. And I knew that if I was angry about something, or I was like frustrated because I was constantly seeing the same, same things happen for 95% of the photographers. I had to kind of just get to a point where I was calm about it because that would come through in my critique. And I didn't want that to come through. I didn't want them to hear the anger. I wanted them to hear the, the education in it. And it was a very good education because when you do that much writing, it helps you when you speak it. And you, you also have the, the advantage when you speak to somebody is you can look them in the eye and you can kind of give them that look and that little, you can be playful much more so than you can. That's why I actually think video critiques can work pretty well because you have that connection in that, you know, that eye to eye kind of thing going on with people that you just don't have when you do it all by text. I think you really have to know who your audience is, how they learn, because some people learn by showing, some people learn by hearing, some people learn by, you know, like by touching, by doing it, tactile things. So learning kind of all those modalities is very, very helpful. And I just feel like you kind of, you kind of, you got to be human. You got to, you, you, you can't build you can't just break somebody down. You just can't do it. I don't think anymore. You might've been able to do it in the seventies and the eighties, but you just can't do it in the, in the 20, 2020. You just don't, you just don't, it's just a different audience and you have to speak into that audience. But I still think there's a way to tell people that, no, I don't, I'm sorry. That's not acceptable. It's, this is what's good, but this is what it's gotta be to be better. And I think you can say that to people and be honest and be, um, uplifting and I don't think you have to necessarily tear people down, but you're right. It's, it's something that's lacking, but I also think that, you know, maybe coming out of this COVID-19, there's going to be much more opportunity for this because as, as we have all kind of done more and more remote work and zoom calls and things like that, people are much more adaptable to do that kind of work. And I, and I actually think that it could be a real potential way to learn. So what do you see as, in having done so many of those critiques and, and working with, with students, what do you see as some of those mistakes you see over and over and over again? Well, a lot of it is just there's exposure issues. There's not a consistency in exposure. And I've always felt like at the foundation of everything, you've got to really master exposure. Because if you can master exposure in any situation with any lighting, you can basically handle any kind of post-production. Once you get those technical skills of shutter aperture ISO and begin to see light and know that you can deliver constantly consistent, excellent files, quality images from a, from a technical standpoint, then you can work and build the aesthetic and you can work on other things like gesture, framing, composition, moment. But it also comes to um, mastery of each focal length, like your medium wide angle, like your 35, your normal lens, your 50, your 85. And like I shot a lot of prime, so I can see th three or four photos in every photo because of the way I shot with the 35 and an 85 and 50 and things like that. So helping people learn how to frame up a situation, to walk into a situation, to see light, where it's coming from, and to know where they need to be. And easily people easily rely on Zooms. It's very easy to kind of get comfortable with them, but it's also easy to get lulled into complacency with them as well. And I've, I've always felt like when the, the lens that came with cameras went from a 50 to a 28 to 135, 
it kind of crippled photography in a certain way because when you had a 50, a normal lens, the lens that Henry Cartier-Bresson made a career out of, you began to see things in a really unique way. And when you went to a zoom, it just became a function of zooming. It didn't become a function of framing with real intentionality. And that's why I think primes are a really great teacher because especially with a 50, you can really learn how to do a lot of things that make it look wider and then also make it look longer, like as a more of a telephoto lens with that just one lens, like a 50, like a 5518, say for the Sony, something very, very modest and relatively inexpensive. You can do anything with it, really. And when people learn how to see the world through certain frame lines, I think they begin to become better photographers and they see photos before they even put a camera up to their eye. Well, Paul, what better way to end up our conversation than going back to basics with a 50? So we're going to finish off today's uh, interview with a quick lightning round of questions and then let people know where they can find some more of your work online. Okay. What's the one thing in your bag you never leave home without? Gosh. <laughs> SD cards. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of them. Yeah. Um, gosh, it varies so much. Um, I always try to bring an extra battery. Mm-hmm. So we've all been there. Uh, another thing that when I'm doing an event or a wedding, I always throw a strobe in there. Mm-hmm. And it's not because I love strobe, but I've always, I've, it, it's a, it harkens back to my days in newspapers when you had to be ready for everything. And you had to have a strobe in there because sometimes you'd put your camera in your hot shoe and just angle it down. And all you'd have to do is like nuke them and blast them, you know, as, as Artie Grace from uh, Newsweek magazine used to call it used to call it flash for cash. <laughs> and I've never forgotten that. So I always feel like it's kind of nice to have it, especially when you're on an event. What's the most important thing you've said no to in your career? Coming back to Chicago, it was, I had a chance to go back and I didn't go back. And it was a very difficult decision, but I'm glad that I didn't go back because it's hard to go home again. Although I am back in Wisconsin now, but at that point in my career, it just wouldn't have really served me to go back to that place because I felt like I would have just been going over the same ground. I wanted to try something new and that's why the West kind of called me to go out there to Phoenix. And I'm glad I did because that was, that changed the course of my life and every facet was that one left turn as opposed to a right turn. Mm -hmm. What keeps you up at night? Right now, what keeps me up at night is when is this, COVID-19 going to end and when can we start getting back safely into doing events and weddings and when can we start doing uh, portraits and beginning to, you know, get our revenue back up. Uh, That's one of the things that's so hard about this is that we don't have an end date. There's no real uh, end date in mind. And, you know, the, the folks that are working or they're working from home are still drawing salaries and that's great for them, but it puts a person like me who is self-employed and doesn't have control in this situation into a very precarious place. And so that's one of the things that keeps me up right now. Well, we certainly hope that it does get resolved as soon as possible. So what do you do outside of photography that recharges you? I love watching my kids play sports and Mm -hmm. I, it's, it's just one of those things that I loved playing sports as a, as a kid. And my dad used to coach me in baseball. And while I don't coach my son in baseball, I just love watching the pure joy in his face. Now, 
it's not quite totally away from photography because I do go to these games and I photograph them because I can't just be a dad who sits on the stands and watches but doesn't shoot it because these photos would be in my brain forever and I would be so sad that I didn't have them to pass on to my kids because, you know, I would love to have a photo of my dad and me or even just my dad down on the third base line holding his clipboard and his scorebook, you know, but I don't have mm-hmm. those photos. So I want to have those photos of my kids playing sports. Ideally, you know, as a kid who grew up loving Sports Illustrated, to be able to get a, give a kid a photo that they could carry through their life that would be good enough for SI and make a wall portrait of it or a wall poster, wouldn't that be a pretty cool thing to do? So I shoot a lot of sports here for these local kids, and a lot of them I could just post them for, so that they can download them because I really think it's important for them to have them. I love it. I love it. What advice would you give to a student graduating from university today that's considering a career in news or photography? Well, news and photography are two different things. If they're considering a news career, I'm probably not the person to ask for advice because I've been out of the game for a while, but I could probably point them to the right people. But it's a different ballgame than it was when I was in it. And I wouldn't want to be the person to dash anybody's dreams because I had enough of that happen when I was a kid. But I always want them to think about what's, what's, what do they really want to do? What do they want their work to do and say in the world? And I actually think that our future might be in video because I think when 8K gets normal, I think that's going to mean a 32 megapixel still file. And I think eventually they're going to be taking stills out of video. I don't know when, but maybe some other time. And uh, I really think it's really important for them to learn how to tell stories both with still cameras, but as also as videographers. Well, Paul, this has been a fantastic conversation and loved hearing all of your insight from both the news world and beyond. So finally, where can people see some more of your work and connect with you online? Sure. You can find me on my website, which is Paul F as in Frank Giro, G-E-R-O.com. You can find me on Instagram at, at Paul Giro, P-A-U-L-G-E-R-O. And if you want to reach out to me, you can find me on my email at paul at paulfgiro.com. If you have any questions, please send me an email and I try to answer everybody who writes to me, especially if there are younger photographers who are looking for some direction or from insights. People have helped me along the way, people like Andy Haight, people like John Beaver, and people like David Burnett. And it's the least that I can do is to try to help some young photographer kind of maybe see a path in this world because I don't have all the answers, but I'm happy to share what I know. Well, thank you so much, Paul. That is an incredibly generous offer. So all you younger photographers listening in, please, please take him up on that. Well, thank you, Paul, for coming on. This has been a great interview and uh, look forward to getting out of COVID as soon as possible and back to work. Me too. Thanks so much. Thanks everyone for listening to today's amazing episode with Paul Giroux. That's at Paul Giroux online, G-E-R-O. Definitely go check him out and give him a follow. As we mentioned in the intro to today's episode, if you've got a question or anything you want to ask on the show that I'll respond to AMA style, I've set up a page at photoforward.media slash connect, or feel free to send an email or voice message to connect at photoforward.media, and we'll tackle those Q&As in upcoming episodes. Enjoying listening to the Photo Forward podcast? Want to hear more thought-provoking, engaging discussions about photography, creativity, or freelance business? Well, this is where you come in. We want to get the word out as wide as possible about Photo Forward 
and reach as many listeners as possible. And the best way to do that is through reviews and recommendations on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you consume your podcasts. If you want to support more engaging and intimate conversations with photographers, cinematographers, and storytellers the world over, head on over to the Photo Forward page and drop a review to let me know how you all are enjoying the show, or even just a rating. It means a ton to growing the show, and I personally read through each and every review to make the show the best damn visual storytelling podcast out there. Thanks for listening, everyone. And as always, keep seeing, keep thinking, and keep putting your best photo forward. Catch you all in the next one. Mm-hmm.